Welcome to the Advancing Women Podcast, where ambitious women come together to challenge the status quo, advance their careers, and up-level their lives. The Advancing Women Podcast is hosted by gender equity expert and executive coach, Dr. Kimberly D. Simone. Welcome, warriors, to the Advancing Women Podcast. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Holly Catalfamo. Dr. Catalfamo is an award-winning educator with top-notch credentials academically, combined with impressive human resource leadership experience in both the private and public sectors. She's been a professor for almost two decades, as well as a leader in global development projects. Her doctorate in education from the University of Toronto focuses on leadership and leadership development. Most recently, Dr. Catalfamo has co-authored the meticulously researched evidence-based book, The Invisible Rules, What's Really Holding Women Back in Business and How to Fix It. And I love how the research in this book captures the insights of women and their experiences navigating the corporate pipeline. As all warriors listening know, that is the focus of much of my research, and I'm very passionate about this topic. Dr. Catalfamo and her co-author, Dr. Henretia, argue that women are held back by a series of invisible rules that tilt the playing field in favor of men. They back up their case with findings from interviews with 50 senior female executives who provided insight about the real-life challenges women face in the C-suite and on the way up. Welcome, Dr. Holly Catalfamo to the Advancing Women podcast. Thanks so much, Kimberly. I couldn't be more pleased to be here, and uh, I'm looking forward to chatting with you about the Invisible Rules today. Excellent. Um, so I just want to read the first few sentences of the book to set the tone and the context for our listeners, because it's so impactful. Like it or not, there are two sets of rules that govern corporate employment practices, one set for men and one set for women. One set that continues to preserve a long-standing male power structure by assuring that a disproportionate number of men achieve senior leadership status and the big paychecks that go with those positions, and a second set of powerful deeply rooted and largely imperceptible rules that make the pursuit of senior leadership far more demanding and uncertain for aspiring women. Amen, Holly. You guys really (laughs) nailed it. (laughs) So why don't we start with a little background on what inspired the book? Absolutely, Kimberly. So I had an opportunity to meet Paul who was uh, studying at Niagara University. He was finishing his PhD uh, while I was teaching a global leadership class. And what we discovered is that we had a mutual interest in gender equity. Now, Paul's interest, I think, was primarily sparked by observing his wife's journey through the corporate ladder and some of the roadblocks that she experienced along the way. Um, from my own perspective, in my early stages of my career, I, I found that I had experienced many similar roadblocks. And as we talk about in the book, we talk about uh, the unconscious bias that um, many women, if not all women, face somewhere along the line. Queen bee syndrome, again, uh, a phenomenon that uh, regrettably many of us encounter. So, Having had some shared experiences uh, with Paul's wife and a mutual thirst for really exploring this in more detail, I I, I think it was a perfect uh, culmination of his area of interest for his PhD thesis and my lived experience as a female in the workplace. Um, I, I've also had years of experience as an HR professional 
And I've always been particularly interested in looking at the systems that are in place that sometimes create these barriers that many of us experience. And in my academic experience as a professor, in the last 10 years, I've spent a lot of time working on global development projects where gender equality is a, is a key theme. So all of these things brought us together. And it has been a remarkable journey of discovery. And I'm so pleased to be able to share some of our insights today. That's awesome. It's interesting because a couple episodes ago, I did an episode focused on male allyship. And I know Paul well and count him very much as a male ally. But it's so interesting what you said. You know, he looked at his wife's journey and he looked at his journey. There's this idea that men are seeing their wives now and their children, their daughters, gaining wonderful degrees, great experience, and who are incredibly talented, not achieve. And so it becomes personal, right? So you've got this social justice male allyship, which is important, but there's also this lived experience of men who love talented capable warrior women who just are not advancing in the same ways that they themselves advance. And so it becomes a real eye opener. So I think that's such an interesting point. And I think one that is really proving itself out. We have more male allies as this happens who want to help us overcome all of those barriers and uh, additional biases that women face. Well, it's interesting, Kimberly, and I'm glad you talked a little bit about this because, you know, Paul will be very forthcoming about his own um you know, his own lack of recognition when he was talking with his wife throughout her career and he would say, well, maybe you should do this or maybe you should do that. And when he became immersed in the research and his studies, he really realized is that what he was doing is he was telling her to be more male-like. Right, right. It was, I, I think, as he tells the stories, it was a real awakening for him when he started to dig deep into his research and... Uh, during his studies, and then subsequently the work that we did when we were interviewing our 50 uh, leaders, that uh, he really came to that aha moment where, yeah, this isn't the solution, telling women to be more male-like, be more assertive. Um, that's that's not the ticket. That's not the ticket. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting. I always say, you know, we'll never win at being better at being men than men. Uh, and I think it is interesting because there's so much research. Carter and Silva did a study of I think it was like 3,600 men and women MBAs who graduated from top universities who were given a set of instructions, best practice, advice on how to get ahead. And in fact, it didn't work equally well for both men and women. And I think that that is a great aha moment for both men and women to realize that, you know, the advice we give women sometimes to be more like the existing power structure or to do it the way it's kind of always been done. First of all, it's unfair because it suggests that this is a man's world that we have to adapt. And I know we'll talk about that a little bit more in the book, but even perhaps more importantly, the strategies don't work as well for women. And there's a lot of backlash when sometimes women try to balance that tightrope. In this podcast, I have this tagline that comes up often. It's not your fault, but it is your problem in terms of approaching this issue from a perspective of empathy. So acknowledging these biases that get in our way, but it is your problem because you do have to transcend, right? So it's not your fault, but it is your problem. So we have to be pragmatic and empathetic at the same time. And I think that's part of what I find so appealing in the book, that you guys really balanced the real inequities, women wanting to advance face, but then the CAPS model is so pragmatic 
And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the CAPS model, which is a focus of the book, and take us through the key tenets of that. Oh, absolutely, Kimberly. So one of the things that um, I think is helpful to know is that in our exploration of uh, senior female leadership, we had the opportunity to interview 50 highly accomplished women. Um, and the, these women had really gotten to the peak of whatever specific profession they had chosen. And so we we try not to make the invisible rules a how-to guide in terms of, you know, this is your ticket. This is how- and I love that because, you know, nobody needs the Google five-point strategy, <laughs> you know, five bullets. It's like, oh, wow, all we needed was these five bullets. Who knew? Yeah, I concur. And so what was really so incredibly compelling about the interviews is, is that we heard their, their stories and they, they shared with us how their particular journey unfolded and some of the challenges along the way, but also some of the strategies that they practiced as they moved up the spiral uh, in terms of their career success. And through those stories, what we found is that there were four key themes that emerged. And so that forms the basis of the CAPS model. We talk about credentials, adaptability, profile, and support. So when you think about the first being credentials, credentials really signifies that as females, as we we have strong credentials, that gives us the credibility to be successful in our careers but also a, a voice at, at the table. So we often talk about credentials being the ticket to the dance. I love that because, you know, a, a face at the table is not a voice at the table. Oh, absolutely. A table 100%. Is something different. So I think that that's such an important insight and I'm glad you mentioned it. Yeah. And Kimberly, I think that um, many of your listeners and certainly I recognize that getting the ticket to the dance doesn't guarantee that you're going to be um, successful in your role. So we just have to be mindful of the fact that credentials are really important to us and they, they take different forms, uh, academic, uh, quite interestingly, professional credentials seem to ring loud and clear throughout our interviews. Um, and then we also talk about the, the notion of adaptability and you mentioned that earlier. Successful female leaders t- tend to have the ability to, to balance that stereotypical view of um, what is assertive behavior uh, that is often attributed to male leaders with the types of behaviors that we traditionally attribute to to female. Um, As leaders, we have to learn those skills of being adaptable. And I think this is probably one of the biggest challenges is knowing when and how to assert ourselves in what circumstances. Um, But I also would argue Uh, Additionally, that we really need to be um, institutionally and societally rethinking what those behaviors are so that we don't have this preconceived notion that assertive leadership behavior is the only way to approach a given situation. So I think we need to look at it from both angles. And I I can tell you. uh, (laughs) Yeah, I have to laugh because I I actually put a post on my Instagram the other day and it was a cartoon and there were two women at the computer. And one woman says in the talk bubble, what's the difference between aggressive and assertive? And the other person said, your gender. (laughs) You know, it's funny and, and also not funny at the same time. But you know, that delicate balance, no doubt. Yeah, well, it, uh, it, certainly, it certainly is something that uh, 
captures that uh, philosophy. <laughs> I, I Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> the next um, part of the, the CAPS model is the whole idea about profile building. Success can often be attributed to having the ability to cultivate a really, really strong profile. And there's different ways of doing that. And when you think about what's the reputation I'm building, what's the network I'm building within my own department, within the organization, and then in the broader industry, and in some circumstances, and with many of our leaders, they absolutely had cultivated a national or an international profile as well. And, you know, that becomes challenging. You know, you've touched on it in previous podcasts uh, where one's looking at all the competing demands that women face and then, you know, attending a professional association meeting or becoming a member of a board, those competing pressures can be really challenging for really incredibly bright, talented women who are ambitious, but trying to find the right balance. Um, And then finally, the whole notion of support and that actually you know, certainly dovetails into the whole idea of it's okay to have support. And in fact, we won't be successful without support. And there's different sources of support, as you know. So it could be things that you integrate into your life to make your life a little bit easier. And that could be, for example, hiring cleaning services. Uh, so that that's one one less thing that you have to, to think about. But I'll, I'll also you have to look at how supportive is your workplace? And that's the sort of that myriad of policies and procedures and um, and also uh, support that is probably informal support around, well, it's okay to use those policies. So it's great to have the policy, but there has to be a culture where it's not only acceptable, it's encouraged. See, I was going to jump in and say that, but I need not have to because you just covered it. I totally agree. You know, sometimes we talk about how do we give more in terms of our policies, maybe more time off for maternity leave and more time off for paternity leave for men. And I think that's important. Don't get me wrong, but let's start with getting people to take the existing maternity and paternity leave because we have huge problems even there. And so, you know, rules and guidelines don't really matter uh, if to your point, and I think what we're talking about, because there's a set of more powerful invisible rules or behaviors that are kind of underlined that, you know, this is really, if you want to be accepted and you want to belong, you're going to kind of march to this beat of this drum. And I think that's really an important thing and something we have to be challenging on more. And I, I love that you guys did that here. It's saying, look, creating new policies and rules is not enough. This is culture. This is oh. the belief that by every person that you truly support and stand behind these policies. And that's a whole different thing. And I think you're absolutely spot on. Oh, I, I couldn't agree with you more, Kimberly. And, uh, you know, even when you think about parental leave and think about what still happens in organizations when a man decides to take a four-month four leave so that he can be there in the early stages of his child. And, you know, the reaction is still uh, for men and women, uh, you know, there's an eyebrow raised. For, for many- I have to laugh, Holly, because you're showing your Canadian side when you even talk about a four-month leave. For men. <laughs> because as an American, I think, I don't know very many men who take a week 
off. And even uh-huh. if they get it, they're um, kind of poked fun at or if not poked fun at for taking it, there's a heroic reverence to those who are back at work two days later type of thing. So yeah, it's really, it's the whole idea that gender equity is good for everyone. And I've talked about that in the past too, including men, because men are also having less of what they want out of life by stereotypes of women as caregiver and men as breadwinner. That breadwinner homemaker model doesn't work well for anyone, especially with men today who want to be more equal partners in their relationships and, and in their role as parent and have those kinds of relationships with their children. Absolutely. And I think that workplaces that don't recognize this are being very short-sighted because, you know, just to chat a little bit about generational diversity, you know, the gen the Gen Ys and the, the next generation, they have a very different approach and philosophy of work than perhaps the boomers and even some of the, the Gen Xers. And obviously these are generalizations that are made, but it, it they are based on generational research. And you know, I look at my own two children who are young men in their 20s, and I know that they have a very different view of work than perhaps their father and I did, who started out, you know, 30 years before them or 25 years before them. And so, you know, we've got a war for talent. It's a global phenomenon. We really need to look hard at what we're doing with respect to equity, diversity, and workplace practices if we want to win that war. A hundred percent. I love that. Uh, I want to talk a little bit more about the CAPS model and specifically, let's start with credentials and adaptability. And I'm a rule breaker, so I'm going to go out of the order of your CAPS model and start with adaptability in particular. I want to talk about the Goldilocks effect. And for those who have the book, that's page 81. And you use the analogy as kind of not too aggressive, not too passive, just right. And of course, that makes me think of the tightrope bias, which I know the work of Williams and Dempsey has influenced my research and publications. I know it was a big influence in this book. And I think talking about that a little bit, I I mentioned that meme about being aggressive versus being assertive and all of the things we have to do to walk that tightrope, which is really a perfect analogy of, you know, that balancing act. And I wondered if you could talk about that just a little bit more. Uh, Yeah, absolutely, Kimberly. And I think I want to start off by saying, um, by no means are we prescribing that there is a certain behavior that's optimal. And I really want to emphasize in particular that it's really important throughout our journeys, throughout our personal and professional journeys, we really have to be true to our authentic selves. And and for me, that's, that's critically important as a leader. And it's critically important for all of us in terms of um, our success and our connection to to who we are uh, as individuals, as humans. So I appreciate you saying that, and I I think it's about the empathy piece too. There, uh, this weighs towards empathy more than pragmatism, and I think we're in agreement on this. It's not about prescribing what women should be like. It's about saying we see you and hear you and understand that for almost all women, this tightrope balance is there. It is very real. It is unfair, but nonetheless, something that we have to transcend, right? So I I agree with you. I do think, you know, we have to take a look at it and say, how has this impacted the journey? How does this impact the journey of talented women as they try to ascend to those highest levels? Yeah, absolutely. Kimberly, I I couldn't agree more. It's about eyes wide open, right? It's about recognizing that this is the... This is the sandbox we're playing in. And 
despite what's happened in my day, if I walk into a meeting and I'm slamming my fist on the table, which both men and women have been known to do in corporate North America, um, having worked in the private sector for, for a number of years, I, I definitely observed that before. But nonetheless, it's understanding about uh, perceptions and behaviors. And I would encourage all of us to be reflective practitioners so that we are thinking about how our behaviors are going to be um, impacting perceptions and what is the time to slam my, my fist on the table if necessary? When do I push? When do I pull? And recognizing how that's going to contribute to my journey as a leader. So it really is all about reflection and action. I love that. And I also love the learning, even amplification, right? So I recently heard an interaction between a man and his boss. And the man was very fired up and angry. And there was yelling and swearing and <laughs> screaming. And so much so that I actually kind of reached out to the person after and I was like, are you okay? And he's like, well, you know, that's just part of the job. And I said, I would be remiss not to say, because, you know, <laughs> gender equity, that if that had been a woman or God forbid, a woman of color, swearing and screaming so that all can hear, I think that would have been devastating to that person's career. And yet there really doesn't seem to be any recourse. It was about raising the point. And that's why talking about this is so important because we need to be mindful. We need to see it and we need to interrupt it too. So part of this is women is saying, okay, I realize this is happening. I'm going to speak up and say, you do realize what happened here. Or for men who read your book and listen to get, go, now let me be honest about how this would be received or what I'm seeing. And I've had students in the classroom defend me. I remember talking about how good I was at something in my classroom where I co-taught with a male counterpart. And one of the male students jokingly said, oh, wow, you know, nothing like bragging about yourself. And a student, a female student jumped in and goes, he does that all the time. And you've never said anything to him. But the first time she says something and I had to laugh because it was I was like, thank you for coming to my rescue. But it, and it was a very funny moment. But at the yeah. same time, you know, talking about this makes it real. You notice it, you think about it, maybe it changes then. And so I think that's really important. And I couldn't agree more with you, Kimberly. I, I think that if you've got a male standing in the middle, middle of an office space, stamping his feet and, you know, swearing and carrying on, that it's incumbent upon that individual's leader to take that individual aside in a private space and say, that's not cool. And here's why it's not cool. If that was you, Holly, you'd be going home that night going, I cannot believe I became so unhinged publicly. <laughs> that's going to mean for what people think about me. And you'd be beating yourself up. And I'm feeling like maybe this man went to bed and slept like a baby after that happened. <laughs> maybe I'm wrong, but. No, you couldn't be more right. Uh, I, I'm sure that I've had moments that I've, I've had exactly that conversation with me throughout my journey. But uh I think that's what women do extremely well. We would be reflective. I have been reflective and went, you know, take a step back. What was the trigger? What did I do? Is that how I, I want to see myself? Like, most importantly, is that how I want to see myself? And also, um, is that how I want others to see me? So I love that. It's, it's that anti-fragility mindset because we have all of these biases, barriers, hindrances that are unfair. 
but they force us to have to be better in some ways or to be introspective. And in some ways, that's part of our superpower. So it may not be fair, but if we can tap into it and say, ah, but I'm stronger and better, I shouldn't have to deal with it. But since I do, I have found I am more reflective and I am less likely to behave in a way that isn't really acceptable because I can't get away with it, but nobody really should be behaving that way. So good on me that I have that skill that I've had to develop. I think that's really an awesome point you bring up. I, yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree with your, your summary there. Really, I, I really do think that we owe it to ourselves, male or female, as emerging leaders and leaders within organizations to really be reflective and modify our behavior if need be, male or female. But also, I, I do like the context that you're putting it in with respect to understanding how how a male would be interpreted versus a female and recognizing that there are in fact differences. It lands different. And you, it sure does. If you don't admit it, it doesn't make it not true. It lands different. Whether it should or shouldn't is a different conversation versus the fact that it actually does. And so, you know, we have to be mindful of that. Absolutely. And I did want to now jump back to credentials um, because I think, Nothing builds confidence like competence. So when you feel super confident and competent in something, even when you make a mistake, it doesn't bother you as much because you know you can do it. And so I think the idea of constantly building credentials and in turn confidence and allowing ourselves to have confidence, like I feel like I can step up to the table and you mentioned that with more confidence because of my credentials. And I wanted to see if you could elaborate on that a little bit, because I thought that was such a meaningful part of the book. Absolutely. And when we think about credentials, we often think about, you know, the piece of paper. I used to work with an administrative assistant who used to call it the alphabet soup, right? So the letters behind your uh, behind your name. And, and, and that, of course, is very important. Um, and certainly our leaders talked about the academic uh, credentials that they've gained. But most of our leaders, not all of them, but most of the leaders had advanced credentials. So they, they talked about going on and, and getting professional certification. So if they were in accounting or if they were in human resources, they would go on and get whatever the professional designation that was attached to their profession. And so it, it serves a number of purposes. Not only does it give you certainly more confidence, it demonstrates competence and confidence because typically these credentials have some form of a, uh, a testing process. There's rigor. In Absolutely. But it, it also uh, lends that expert power that uh, is very useful in organizations. So I'm going to go talk to Kimberly because she has her... Uh, project management certification so that when I go to talk to her, I know that she's going to be an expert in managing a project. Uh, So that really helps to build confidence. But I I also think we have to recognize, and we do talk about this in the book, what are perhaps not seen as formal academic credentials or uh, industry-related credentials, but are more informal. And those are those strategic competencies and operational competencies that you bring to the table. If you've been working with an organization and you've been demonstrating excellence in your leadership capabilities, or you've managed a a plant of 250 people for a period of time, you start to develop that expertise. 
And this is something that I, I think that we, again, we need to be reflective of so that it, it doesn't necessarily have to be just the academic qualification. I've demonstrated excellence. I've dem- demonstrated competence after X amount of years in the profession. And that helps to build my confidence, thereby people start to see me in, in a different light. But it, it fits so closely, Kimberly, with our whole conversation about uh, profile and branding. And I was I- just going to say you are perfectly segueing into the discussion of profile. And building yeah. a personal brand that really resonated with me when you talked about building a personal brand. And I'm going to, again, for those who have the book on page 83, I'm going to quote this. A lot of women simply don't understand the importance of building a personal brand. And I think that's really interesting because it relates to me in ways of, do we have a say in building our narrative, what our brand is us owning or at least influencing what the narrative is about us and who we are. And I think that's such an important thing for women, especially to say, I want to be a part in deciding what people see when they see me. I want to be a part of narrating my story and having some say in building my own personal brand. Yeah, absolutely. And it's all about um, how do you want people to see you? First, how do you see yourself? And secondly, how, how do you want others to see you? And, you know, we, we talk about, you know, departmental organization, industry and national, which I had already touched on. But I really think it's, you know, this is what I've observed. A lot of truly competent women and really skilled women and remarkably super smart women, we put our head down and work. But we we have to compel ourselves to look up from that work and look outward. And I, I totally agree. We get bogged down in the housekeeping sometimes unfairly that are the things that are expected of women who are kind of in this position to say, well, what do I have to do and how can I pitch in and how can I be communally a part of this? And that's such a, a big part of who we are. But to your point, and analyzing not just what you bring, but what you bring that's important to the organization and that moves the needle for yeah. you in terms of getting ahead and advancing the ways you want to. Well, yeah, and it's about cultivating that reputation well beyond your inner circle. And just to tell a little story, I was sitting in on interviews earlier this week. As we do, we offer candidates an opportunity to ask a question at the end of uh, at the end of the interview. And this candidate asked, um, "What's what are the opportunities to be involved in other committees outside the organizational unit?" And I'm thinking to myself, "Bonus! This individual is already in touch with her career trajectory. It is clear to me that she was seeing this." as an opportunity to join our organization, but to grow within our organization. And her interest in getting involved and known beyond the department that she would be working for signaled to me that she's cultivating that profile. And I think we all know that that's one of the best ways for an individual who is uh, ambitious and wants to move within the organization is to start cultivating those relationships Uh, throughout the organization. And I can tell you that for my own career, um, I don't know that I personally was mindful at the time that, well, I'm going to join the United Way Committee because I think that that's an opportunity for me to meet people outside. 
for me, it was, well, this is a great way of giving back. But there is no doubt in my mind that my interest in being involved throughout the organization and various task forces that were um, about things that I was passionate about or doing community service, all of that had a benefit of, uh, of showcasing who I was beyond my organizational unit and certainly supported my growth within the organization. And that is excellent advice. Do you think it's important, and you already noted, and it goes without saying, it sometimes can be a challenge for women who all of these disproportionate at-home responsibilities, and then you have maybe some additional housekeeping responsibilities within the organization, and then you're trying to do all the things to advance and so forth. But I think taking a step back and saying, I have to commit to some of these things that move the needle for me. And I think you're exactly right. And, And just being mindful and uh, intentional in yes. ensuring that we pick some things that prioritize our development, our growth, and creating the kinds of relationships we need, which again is a perfect segue into the final S in the CAPS model. I want to talk a little bit about sponsorship. Of course, it's important to note that mentorship is helping you evolve and grow and sponsorship is helping you advance, right? This is the person who's supposed to help put you in that position. And I wanted to talk a little bit about the organizations here and how we get leadership and senior leaders to see the importance of this, making a it a part of the culture versus something women have to figure out for themselves and work so hard for, because I think we've got women to a degree running around trying to find mentors and sponsors as opposed to a culture of sponsorship Mm -hmm. and mentorship. And so how do we address that? Do you think organizationally? Yeah, that's a great question, um, Kimberly. And I don't profess to have all the answers, that's for sure. But uh, just to, you know, re-emphasize or to emphasize something that you've said is that mentorship and sponsorship are not the same thing. And unfortunately, many people in organizations think that mentorship and sponsorship is the same thing. So I think we have to start out with, you know, to go back to that education and building awareness. So what's the role of sponsorship within an organization? It's about me saying, I believe in you, I have confidence in you, and I'm willing to put my own reputation on the on the line to showcase you so that you get the exposure and the opportunities that I believe you deserve. And what I've seen some organizations, I was doing some work with an organization, uh, which is a Canadian and American organization, and I believe the, the head office is in the U.S., um, who has committed to a formal sponsorship program. And what they did with their senior executive team And then with those who had signed up for sponsorship is they actually provided an education experience that taught them what sponsorship was and then defined clearly what the expectations would be of them as sponsors to their mentees or protégés. I like that. You In the book, it says at one part early in the book, when it comes to gender equity, women need coaching and men need education. Right. And I love that. Maybe, we, maybe both men and women need a little bit of both. Both need a little education. Both need a little coaching. Uh, yeah. And, and education and awareness are, are never bad things for anybody. <laughs> so I, I, I was really encouraged in, with this particular company in terms of them not only giving the the formal statement about their commitment to sponsorship, but then 
acting on it. And whether or not that works for every organization, you know, it's not for me to say, but I think it's being deliberate, being mindful, and quite frankly, putting your money where your mouth is. If you believe in this, then you have to act on it. I was recently doing um, some work in the equity, diversity, and inclusion space. And we know that um, it's very difficult for some people to truly acknowledge where their shortcomings might be. And I think it's because, you know, there's a, um, there's a great book by um, Dolly Chu. Um, it's, it's called The Person You Mean to Be. Um, and I certainly encourage your readers to, to, to look at it. But it's all about, her tagline is how good people fight bias. And it's, it's so hard for us to recognize that admitting that you have some biases or, you know, unconscious bias doesn't mean that you're a bad person. We all want to be perceived in the world as being good, good people. If so we could do one thing, it would get people to not associate biases as being a bad thing because nothing's scarier than a person who doesn't think they have them. And you can't clean your house if you don't see the dirt. And so acknowledging, of course, I have biases. I live in a world with messaging that is going to move me towards certain biases. So acknowledging them is not about saying I'm a bad person, to your point. While we were pulling out books, I remember the back <laughs> book Justice by Sandal, which is a really very famous and well-cited book. But he says in the book this line that really jumped out at me when you were speaking, which is, we learn justice through the experience of injustice. And why I love that is, and part of what you're saying is, when you don't experience something, it's sometimes hard to see it. And so we live in a particular way and have a certain set of experiences, and that does make it a challenge for us. And agree. And, you know, we're human. Therefore, we're all on a journey of discovery. And I, I think when we can get to a place where we can say, I'm really trying to learn more about this, help me to understand your perspective. I, I, I think we're all going to be in a bit better of a place, but we definitely have some work to do. The original question you sought to answer with this book was, why today do women remain so dramatically underrepresented in the highest echelons? And we're talking about those positions of power, pay, and prestige. And I think to your point, we need to continue to ask questions. We need to continue to challenge assumptions. We need to continue to be introspective. And I think that was such a great takeaway from this conversation is really, you know, understanding that there are things that we don't always think about that need to rise to the surface. And we have to be introspective if we want to ultimately change things. And we know that there are both visible and, as your book shows, <laughs> Invisible rules that left unchecked create disadvantage for highly qualified, ambitious women. And we need to continue to know better so ultimately we can do better. So cheers to you and Dr. Henrathia for your continued commitment to the important work that I know motivates you as it does me. Thank you so much, Kimberly. It's been an absolute pleasure talking about this. And I know both of us could go on for... Um, I know, I know. And I want to... Yeah. glass of wine one night. <laughs> oh, for sure. Sooner than later. I so appreciate the work you've done with the book and how you continue to be a part of creating this more level playing field for women's advancement. And I was hoping maybe you could tell our listeners where they can find the book and or more about the CAPS model. I'll also share the information in the notes, but if you want to share that. 
Great. Well, our book is available on Amazon. Thank you so much for asking. And if you're interested in learning more about uh, the work that Paul and I do, uh, you can find us at tapsleadership.ca, which is one word, Taps Leadership. So we'd be pleased for you to reach out. Wonderful. So every episode, I end with what I call a manifest statement or a key takeaway, a kind of statement of how this discussion might manifest pragmatically. And fortunately for me, that was easy this week because I'm actually going to steal it right from your book. There was a quote at the end from one of the women you interviewed, and she said this, quote, the question is, are we really committed to gender diversity? If the answer is yes, We need to make it a top priority and move forward with ambitious goals and bold actions. Ambitious goals and bold actions, indeed. Bold actions create momentum, and we need that momentum to fix this deeply broken leadership pipeline that relegates far too many talented, highly qualified women to the sidelines. And thank you again for joining me to talk about this today, Holly. It has absolutely been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Kimberly. It's been a pleasure to spend this time with you and with your listeners. Good luck with the podcast. (laughs) Great. Good luck with the book. Thank you. For more resources, you can visit my website, www.advancingwomenpodcast.com and connect on Instagram at advancingwomenpodcast. I love getting your feedback and ideas on topics. So please email me at Dr. D. Simone at advancingwomenpodcast.com with your ideas and feedback. I just want to thank Joe Jacobs, the audio warrior who wrote the music for this podcast, and a huge thanks to Heather Harris, the creative warrior who designed the Advancing Women podcast logo. And thanks to all of you for joining me here today.